Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have a super awesome cool guest on the show. We have Dr. Linda McIver, who is the founder, another founder, they're so awesome, and executive director of the Australian Data Science Education Institute. Welcome to the show, Dr. Linda. Thanks, Amelia, and well done with the title. It's quite a mouthful. It is, but I got it first time. You did. So <laughs> hopefully starting with it, look, with the title, it's not going to be a super easy question. What is your job? So um, I made up my job. It didn't exist before I started. Uh, I used to be a teacher and before that I was an academic in computer science. And um, for various reasons, which I dare say we'll get into in the podcast, I decided that I needed to reach, I needed to reach more students with the work I was doing, not just the students in my classes. So I quit teaching and I started a startup, which is a charity, which is dedicated to getting um, data science skills and data literacy skills to every student in Australia and to give them those skills in the context of authentic projects that empower them to make change in their own world, to to make positive changes in their own world, so to solve problems in their own communities. That's really cool. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It probably doesn't explain what my actual job is, though. Um, No, no, no. You've done a real nice job of just sort of skirting around that one what you actually do (laughs) it's it's so what I actually do is really varied uh, because I you know it's a startup so I have to do everything um from you know the the sort of business admin through to the actual work of the startup Um, but the main focus of my work is designing and developing projects around real data sets and and projects that as I say kids can use to make change in their own communities and also training teachers to run those projects so I've worked with students before and I love working with students but it doesn't scale if I work with 10 students I've worked with 10 students whereas if I work with 10 teachers then I've reached all of the students that those teachers would ever teach so it's much more scalable if I work with teachers instead so the goal is basically to empower teachers to be able to use data science skills uh, to to teach everything right across the curriculum from English through to maths and science. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who've been on this podcast and have been like, we need more data scientists and data literate people who are going to be really excited that someone's yep. doing it. <laughs> well, that's that's the funny thing. When I started, so I, I was, I trained as a computer scientist. I have a PhD in computer science education and I used to teach computer science at university. Um, and when I moved into secondary teaching, I did that partly because I felt like all the research I was doing in computer science education wasn't really having an impact in the real world. And I wanted to have an impact in the real world. And I thought that working with directly with school students would be more powerful for me. So I moved into secondary teaching and the first subject we started to teach, there were two subjects. There was one year 10 subject, which was basically an introduction to computer science, but it was toys. It was drawing pretty pictures with, um, you know, block-based programming languages that looked like a children's toy, you know, brightly coloured and big coloured blocks. Um, And it was making robots follow lines and it was uh, just nothing real. And at the same time, I was teaching a year 11 subject, which was elective. So the year 10 was core. Everyone had to do that. But the year 11 subject was elective and we got to do whatever I wanted 
in that subject. And so myself and my co-teacher, Victor Rajewski, we created this subject where the capstone project was kids doing work for scientists. So they were actually writing programs that helped solve the data and computational needs of scientists and, and doing real research. And what I found was that those kids kept working on those projects long after the subject was over. Not all of them, but some of them. And they were just super motivated because they could see they were doing something real and something that mattered and something that made a difference. Whereas the kids doing the toy stuff, oh man, they kept coming to me going, why are you making me do this? I hate this and it's not relevant to me. And I was teaching at a science school. And so those kids are supposed to be the scientists of the future. And they were saying programming is not relevant to me. So we were really missing the mark with that year 10 subject. Whereas the year 11 subject was just flying. And when I finally got to do some real data projects in the year 10 subject, because that wasn't my subject, so I had to fight to, to change it. Once we started doing projects with real data sets, we were teaching exactly the same coding skills, but now it was in the context of a real data set and something meaningful. And the why are you making me do this just went away. And they were so interested and they found it so relevant. And I thought that what I was doing was just getting more kids interested in tech. That's what I set out to do um, because it frustrated me that these were science students who weren't interested in programming because every scientist is going to need to know some code. But actually that turns out to be the lesser, the less important part of what I do because it was the data literacy that was really important. So not every kid who learns these data science projects is going to go off and be a data scientist. But every kid who does a, a project with real data where it's messy and it's complicated and it's, you know, they don't know whether they've got the right answer or not, those kind of projects give kids data literacy and critical thinking skills that are essential to understanding the world and the way it's changing and to having a voice in the shape of our future. So it turns out that data science education is much, much more than just trying to get kids into data science and just trying to get them into programming. There, there was so much in there, which is all awesome. And I'm like, I'm already thinking of the list of people I'm going to make listen to this one because it'll be good. It'll be good for them in the same way that, you know, a bit of kale is sometimes good for us. But <laughs> oh, now you're saying it's quite unpalatable. Oh. I'm a bit offended by that. <laughs> but it is. it is, you know, it is. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult. For, for some people to swallow because these kinds of projects, you can't just mark them right or wrong. You can't just say, did they get the right answer? Because if you're working with a real data set and it's sufficiently complicated, you don't know what the, what the right answer is. And you can't say in advance, you're going to come to this answer. So you have to mark the process and you have to mark the kid's ability to verify and validate their own results and to ask critical questions about the data set, about um, other people's findings, but also about their own work and their own findings. And those skills are not skills that we teach anywhere near enough. And they're crucially important. And you're going to have things like bias and stuff in there as well. And you're going to have to get teachers thinking <sighs> about that. And that means the teachers who probably themselves weren't taught these skills Absolutely. are having to mark kids on those skills. Like that's, that's yeah. uncomfortable, super uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's hugely uncomfortable, which is why a big part of my work is training teachers to to um, to learn their skills and to figure out how to deal with them in the classroom. Because 
no teacher has been trained to teach this way. No, you know, it's it's not part of our education system. It really needs to be, and that's you know, that's my life's work is to get it in there and change the education system so that more of the projects we're doing are these kinds of projects where kids can make a difference in their community, but also where we don't know the answer. Um, those those projects have so much to offer in terms of problem solving and ethics and critical thinking, and it's just built in. You know, you're not having to artificially create it. But but it is it's super hard to do that when you haven't ever done that before and you haven't been taught how to do that. So that's why um, that's that's the whole reason I created the Australian Data Science Education Institute is to provide those resources and to skill up teachers so that this is a thing we can do and it is a way we can teach. And, you know, long term, my goal is to put my organisation out of business because it'll be the way we teach teachers to teach and it'll be the way teachers teach and it'll just be you know, it'll just be a thing and I won't have to build it anymore. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen in the next day or two. (laughs) No, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's the risk. (laughs) You mentioned like the the concept around scaling and like as a teacher, you Uh you have X number of hours and you you have a number of students that you face, et cetera. And that obviously doesn't scale. Um, Uh How did you, like, what was the catalyst to be like, actually, I, what I'm doing here is good and if I change the model I could scale it like how did most teachers don't think like that I think for me it was kind of built in because it's it my whole career I've been trying to find a way to make a difference uh when I first left academia I I did about five different jobs I was I did freelance writing I did I was a project officer for the Australian Breastfeeding Association. I did pro bono work, communications work for Oxfam Australia, and I did curriculum development work for the school where I, that I wound up teaching at in the end. Um, and all of those different roles were um, my way of looking for a way to make a difference and a way to have impact. And my goal as a teacher was always to to use my teaching position to sort of figure out how to do this properly and then to spread that. But it became clear to me that teachers don't have time for that. Um, they don't have – I was half time and the only reason I could do what I was doing with these great projects was that I was using my own time to build the resources. And and because I have a PhD in computer science, I had the skills to do that as well. Uh, most teachers don't have those kind of skills and they don't have the time. So I realised that I needed, I really needed to put all of my time into training the teachers and developing the resources to make this possible for everybody rather than just one person who happens to have the skills that is part-time. That's a big piece to bite off. I like it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I was lucky that I was in a financial position where I could say I can take a few months without pay and see if we can make this happen. Um, a lot of people aren't. That's you know one of the reasons I think we need a universal basic income because it's shown that when people have a guaranteed income, they actually become more entrepreneurial and they, they become more innovative and they try new stuff. And I was lucky to be able to do that. A lot of people just don't have that opportunity. Yeah, they yeah. I did say I would go off topic. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I mean, like, yeah, I haven't thought about universal basic income for a long time, but and the things I would do if I had it. Oh. Mm, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and they worry that people would stop working. Well, I would stop working for other people. Most people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. 
most people they've found when they study these things, and that's you know my my whole shtick is we we need to look for the evidence, we need to look for the data rather than doing these things ideologically. And most people, when they have a universal basic income, they become they actually work more rather than less. The only people they've found who work less are students and new mums. Well, and that's because they're different kinds of jobs, I guess. Well, yeah, it's because they actually get to focus their attention on the jobs that really matter to them at the time, which is for students, it's learning and for, you know, parents, it's parenting. So anyway, that's a that's a whole other rant. <laughs> but you have touched on uh, different kinds of data sets. Are there any particular ones that you're using with students or building uh, programs around that like you're particularly excited by? Oh, so many. Where would I even start? Um, I have one that I'm, it's on the back burner, but I'm really keen to get to it, which I'm uh, doing a collaboration with the Australia Institute. Um, a senior economist there, Matt Gridnoff, um, did this study that started because some years ago, Tony Abbott made the statement that you can't tax your way to a strong economy. And Matt was like, I'm pretty sure you can. I'm going to have a look at the data. Um, and it was a huge job. And he went through a lot of different data sets and a lot of questions from, you know, various uh, well-being indices through to the actual strength of the economy and, and GDP and measures like that. And he found that actually a stronger, uh, a higher tax rate does correlate with a stronger economy. It's just that that's the way it works. And he's shared that data set with me. So I'm really excited to build uh, lesson plans around that and actually get students to be able to explore those kinds of things. I, I would love in the long term to be able to just on the fly have enough staff to say, oh, some politician just made a ludicrous statement. Let's fact check that. Actually, let's get students to fact check that, you know, sort of put the resources in play within a day or two to go, hey, here you go. You can fact check what... Uh, what this politician just said about the vaccine or about, you know, the virus or about um, the economy or about welfare or whatever, education, all those things. I can just feel all the politicians just like shaking in their boots at that thought. <laughs> Which would be wonderful. Like that's just a bonus. <laughs> Um, one of the other cool projects I've got running at the moment is with the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre in Perth. Um, I ran a workshop there for teachers in uh, 2019 and one of the teachers who came to that workshop came to me afterwards and said, I'd really like to do a project on sleep and mobile phone use because, you know, it's a big, it's a hot topic with teenagers especially. And so we put together this survey about how people slept and, and where they kept their mobile phone and how much they used it and things like that. And and then Pawsey has taken that and run with it and built this whole platform around that data set. Um, and, and we've got projects for science, maths, and digital technologies using that data set. But they've also, we've built a, a whole new survey that is going to be um, useful for researchers as well. Um, and there's going to be, Pawsey is going to use that platform to put more and more projects with more and more real data sets up there. So it's that's going to be a wonderful thing to watch develop. I'm very excited about that one. Will students be able to contribute to that so it'll be like an ever-growing data set? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so even if you run that project two years running, the data set will be different because more people will have contributed. So it's just, it's wonderful. You mentioned earlier about critical thinking being part of this. That's one of the many things about which I am passionate. Mm -hmm. How are you doing that? Like, how do you teach critical thinking in a mm -hmm. way that it actually sticks? Well, the, the trick with that is that you, 
you, you basically you're teaching skepticism and, and you have to do that when you're working with real data because the first thing you look at when you look at a when you look at any data set, the first question you have to ask is what's wrong with this data? Because there is no such thing as a perfect data set. Um, you very rarely have the data you actually want. You usually have some data that kind of approximates the data you want. It's sort of close and maybe it's close enough. I call it it's um that's called proxy data. But there's also, you know, there's always going to be if it's a if it's a data set about people, who's missing from the data? How did we? How did they collect the data? And how, you know, is there selection bias in the way that data was collected? How was it stored? How has it been processed? Where are the issues with this data set? Um, one of the classic examples I use is a data set that I worked with again with um, with the Borsi folks, uh, but also with the West Australian Marine Science Institute. They gave us a data set on whales. And it was observations of whales off the coast of, of Western Australia. And what the data, the data that you want when you're counting whales is how many whales are in the water. But the data you actually have is how many whales did you see breach? And it's actually not even how many whales did you see breach, it's how many breaches did you see happen because you don't always know if the same whale breached twice, right? So it's not the data you want, but it's kind of, it's an approximation that gives you something to work with. Um, all data sets have flaws like that. Uh, the census data, for example, doesn't count homeless people, or if it does, it doesn't count them very well because, you know, the census is delivered to houses and places of residence, and um, there are just whole populations that are missed by the census. And that might be okay. It might be that the resulting data set is close enough that it allows us to do the kinds of calculations we want to do, like where do they need to be new schools, where do they need to be new hospitals, things like that. But it's not a perfect data set. There is no such thing as a perfect data set. So when you're doing the critical thinking, it's what's wrong with this? And then when you actually come up with your results after you've analysed the data set, you think, what is? how do I know that my result is valid? How can I test my result? How can I verify it? How can I hammer it and see if it's wrong? You know, how can I, how can I be really skeptical of my own results and really challenge my thinking to see if there's something I haven't thought of and if my results are actually misleading in some way? And that's, that's a skill we don't teach. And it's fundamental. It's really important. Imagine if politicians were taught to question their their preconceptions and question their own ideas like that would be a big step forward I feel I don't, maybe it's not possible but <laughs> I think that would create change and the other big part of it all is whenever you do something so you know I talked initially about kids doing projects where they can make change in their own communities so the model of that project is you find a problem that you care about you measure it you analyze those measurements and communicate the results and then you try to fix it and then, and this is the really important part, you measure it again to see if it worked. We don't do that. We don't do it in education. We don't do it in business. We don't do it in government. We tend to do latest, greatest, new idea. And then five minutes later, we have another new idea and we do that. And we never actually stop to see which of the ideas worked and how well they worked and who they didn't work for and who they harmed. Those kind of questions, if we build them into the project so that we're automatically going, how is this flawed? You're building critical thinking into the process because you're asking students to challenge their own results and the results of others as a matter of course, as a standard part of the problem-solving process. And it's not as like an insult 
Like it's it's not like you you no. fail because like your your data isn't perfect or something. It's like all data is imperfect. Therefore, where where right. are the holes? Like it's not that it's bad or we can't exactly. work something out. Like whether or not a vaccine's effective, for example, you can still work it out. Yeah, yep. exactly. And you're not looking for a right or wrong answer. You're looking for how well did it work and what did it miss. And so you're automatically assuming that it missed something, right? So you're you're assuming that the that the the solution wasn't perfect because just like no data set is perfect, no solution is perfect. So that means you have to go and look and find out the ways that it's not perfect. And you know, imagine if that was the default. Whereas at the moment we have students who are so invested in getting the right answer that if they get the wrong answer, they're devastated. Well, we're doing away with right and wrong answers. We're going, which bits work? Which bits don't work? Where is the good stuff? Where is the, you know, where are the problems? How do we improve this? And that's an entirely different model. I am excited to see uh, the the youth who get get this as part of their education growing up and what little waves <laughs> they're going to gradually make into the world. <laughs> Well, that's why, um, you know, the book that I'm writing is called Raising Heretics because kids should be changing the world. Kids should be asking difficult questions. Kids should be being heretical and challenging the status quo. And if they're not doing that, then what we're doing is we're raising obedient little people who will do exactly what we've always done. And that's going to leave us exactly where we are, which is in deep, deep problems with climate change and with pandemics and with income inequality. We're not solving the problems we need to solve. So we need to be training kids to be challenging us and going, these things that you've always done, they're a bit shit, really? Do we need to edit that out? Is that okay? (laughs) No, no, no. You're cool. (laughs) Sometimes we need to express ourselves with the full range of language available. Excellent. So you've, you've beautifully just dropped in there that you're writing a book. So, you know, nice little plug. But mm-hmm. heretic is my new favorite word. Are you able to define it for us, though? <laughs> yeah. So basically, being heretical is challenging the orthodoxy. So it's it's saying that something that is widely believed is not or might not be true. And if you think of some of the great heretics of science, you can think of, you know, Galileo, who said that the earth revolved around the sun and he was literally branded heretical. He was nearly killed for it. Uh, Look at Ignaz Semmelweis who said, we should probably wash our hands before we cut people up. (laughs) This was considered heretical and he was laughed at and ridiculed so much that he wound up in an insane asylum where he was beaten and died. Or look at Alice Evans, Alice C. Evans, who came up with the idea that we should pasteurize milk, so we should heat milk to a high temperature to kill off the bacteria. She was also ridiculed, and before her idea was adopted, she actually fell ill from undulant fever, which is one of the diseases you get from milk which hasn't been pasteurized. But she was exactly right that you know it, it, it caused a dramatic drop in disease when her idea of pasteurization was adopted. All of these people were heretics. Uh, Barry Marshall, our own Barry Marshall, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering that Helicobacter pylori was the uh, was the cause of um, ulcers, and to do that because his his he and uh, his co-author's original paper was rejected and consigned to the bottom ten percent of submissions because it was considered so ludicrous, he wound up drinking Helicobacter pylori to induce an ulcer. 
and then taking antibodies to cure it. And that's how he proved that it was a thing, which is pretty extreme, but also very heretical. If it wasn't for heretics, we wouldn't have progressed at all, Amelia. This is only serving to emphasise how much it's my new favourite word. (laughs) Okay, so I love the idea of raising heretics. I don't necessarily love the idea of living with one, though. <laughs> yeah, you could talk like, to my husband about that. <laughs> obviously, like there's definitely uh, status quos. I don't know if that's the plural, but status quo I that maybe that you know need yeah. a good kicking. Um, I'd happily start with the education system, mm-hmm. but there's also some status quos, like for mm-hmm. example. Um, going to the toilet in the toilet, uh, putting your, like not putting mm. your dirty feet on the table, that sort of stuff that, you know, that. Mm-hmm. Or getting vaccinated. Yeah. Oh, radical. Um, <laughs> these, are, these are ones that are kind of like they've been tested by the heretics probably, maybe some yep. mm-hmm. less stable people. Um, we've worked out that it doesn't mm-hmm. work. How do you balance raising heretics and also having people who are still like functional in society so it's about rational heresy uh it's not about heresy for heresy's sake it's about actually testing things to see if they work and and challenging ideas but also it's about understanding the evidence and you know being able to critically evaluate the evidence and go yeah actually getting vaccinated is a really good idea uh my 5g reception didn't improve at all i was very Mm. disappointed Um, you know those kinds of actually thinking of being able to evaluate the data and go something's not right here um there's a wonderful story that i read recently about the whole idea that um covid19 is actually spread by aerosol transmission so it's actually it's in the air and, and the particles in the air can actually hang in the air for quite a long time and that was resisted for a long time. The World Health Organization only recently decided to admit that actually COVID-19 is aerosol transmitted. And in 2011, a scientist by the name, I think, of Lindsay Ma discovered that flu was actually aerosol transmitted. And she was, uh, again, she couldn't get published. Um, she was mocked and ridiculed. Because people said no, nothing that is nothing that is larger than a particle of five microns can actually cause disease. It can't stay in the air. And that went back when she she teamed up with a what's called a data archaeologist who looked up the origin of this five micron number. And it turns out it was a tuberculosis study from the 1930s. And what the five microns related to was not the particles that could hang in the air. It was the particles that actually made it deep enough in the lungs to cause tuberculosis because tuberculosis has to get very deep in the lungs before it causes disease. COVID-19 and the flu did not have to get very deep in the lungs before they cause disease. So particles much larger than five microns can cause disease. And it turns out, as, as Lindsay discovered, they can hang in the air. So we spent probably eight to 12 months believing that COVID-19 was not aerosol transmitted and hundreds of thousands of people died because we weren't giving the right advice about how to avoid COVID-19, which is ventilation and masks and things like that. Whereas they were saying, you know, it was all hand washing and hand sanitizing and not touching surfaces. So Lindsay was a heretic and, and, if people had paid attention to that and if people had been prepared to question that five micron number earlier, 
we could have saved a lot of lives. And that's wild because I thought we kind of knew that it was aerosol. Was that just like on the ground? We were like, well, people sneeze and sneeze particles travel. Well, that's that's droplet. That's not aerosol. So oh. if you're in the direct path of a sneeze, you can you can get droplets and, and get sick that way or a cough or something like that. Uh, but aerosol can actually hang in the air after you've gone. Oh. Uh, so that's how people are getting sick in hotel quarantine. You know, someone's, someone infected has walked through a corridor and then maybe 15 minutes later, someone walks out into that corridor, they can still get sick. Right. So this is down to, like, I guess, definition between droplet and aerosol. Yeah. So aerosol transmission and, and particle transmission or droplet transmission are quite different. And droplet transmission is the stuff that, you know, winds up on surfaces. So it, um, you know, it, you can pick it up from surfaces, whereas the aerosol thing, it, you breathe it in, which is why masks work. There were some fun facts. It's like, uh, that could have been useful earlier. But, <laughs> but as, as listeners may have realised, we are very far off any kind of course because I'm just enjoying having a chat. So I hope you're enjoying having a listen. I, you, you've sort of already touched on this, but how have you ended up in this job? Like what was your path from high school to like creating your own job now? Almost every step was an accident. Fantastic. <laughs> so I went to university intending to study genetics, which I did. Um, but I was so I was doing a science degree. I had uh, I had to do maths and chemistry and biology in order to do genetics, but I had one spare subject. So I chose computer science because I've always liked tinkering with computers. My cousin Chris gave me his old Commodore sixty four to play with when I was. Oh, probably 12 or something and I had a lot of fun with that so it's like oh yeah you know machines that go bing sure <laughs> it was it was it was purely a fill-in uh by third year and I still don't quite know how this happened but by third year the only thing I was studying was computer science I went out and got a job and hated it so I came back to do honors I was offered a PhD by uh, my the guy who wound up being my supervisor Damien Conway who is an extraordinary human being and um, the PhD was in computer science education and it sounded interesting so I went with it I swore black and blue I would never be an academic but that's what I ended up doing at the end of my PhD Um, and I really enjoyed the teaching part of it I couldn't really find my path in research though I couldn't really settle to something that I felt was important and that really mattered And so um, there was a round of redundancies coming up at Monash and I took a package because my second child was due and it seemed like a good time. And then must have been, I think my my youngest was about four when someone I knew from Monash rang me up and said, well, this new school is opening and um, we think you'd be interested. And I said, you know, I'm not coming back into academia, right? He was like, no, no, just hear me out. And so I was working for him the next day. Um, developing curriculum for this new school and and starting to build a, a computer science program for science students. Um, and then, you know, as I say, I got deeper and deeper into that. I wound up teaching at the school um, and and I found that I figured out how to teach kids tech skills and data skills um, and get them engaged when they didn't think it was their kind of thing. And so I thought, well, I figured that out. I need to get that to all kids, not just the kids in my classroom. And that's how Etsy started. And now you've got your own little startup and you're going to change the face of education in Australia. Yeah. That's the plan. Are there any plans for international um, expansion? 
oh yeah this is you know this is a global thing um uh, probably not tomorrow but i've i've got connections with some people overseas and starting to build up some work in that space um i'm i've got a lot of friends in the um in the supercomputing industry and um we're building an education and outreach in data science and supercomputing network to try to connect all of the people who are working in this space because i used to go to supercomputing back when we could go to conferences <laughs> i used to go to supercomputing in the us and i'd meet all these people who were doing amazing work in education and outreach but they were always isolated and you know half the time i'd meet someone who's just down the road from someone else uh, but they didn't know what you know they didn't know each other and they didn't know what they were doing so i started connecting people um saying oh you should meet my friend charlie he's doing cool work in that space and and I started to realize that this was actually a thing that everybody needed was to feel like they were connected with the other people who were working in this space. So we had grand plans to run a conference in uh, October 2020. You can imagine how that worked out. <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully once borders open up again, we'll we'll be able to get that back up and running and, and really connect people who are working in this space. That's That's cool. There's something just about the word supercomputing like even though I know they're just big fancy computers they just it's so much more exciting anything that happens with a supercomputer <laughs> oh it really is okay. that we have two um large supercomputing facilities in Australia world-class ones there's Pawsey who I've mentioned before who are in Perth and there's uh, NCI the National Computational Infrastructure in Canberra um, and they're both doing amazing work. They've both had you know, big contributions to the, the fight against COVID-19 and they do work in climate science and astrophysics and you know, fuel economy and you name it. They have um, projects running on their supercomputers that tackle it and it's just amazing work and really incredible people. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that I do what I do as well because they can't get enough people enough skilled people to work with them and they certainly can't get enough diverse people to work with them and that's because kids are put off this stuff from primary school you know my kids came out of primary school saying we're no good at maths and actually they're extraordinary at maths but they weren't fast on the times tables so they believe because they weren't winning the times tables challenge they believe that they're not good at maths and this is really common and we have you know, similar issues with programming. Kids kids learn programming with robots that break or with, you know, um, systems like Scratch where they can't easily debug their work and they look pretty and they, but they're not, they're not meaningful and they don't learn that this is something worth doing. So if we can teach them from the start that it's something worth doing and something they're capable of doing, then we're going to get a whole new generation of people coming into technology, into the technology industry and into the supercomputing industry who are actually capable of contributing and who are capable of adding different perspectives to the work. And it's those different perspectives that bring with them like the questioning of all those biases and just assumptions that exist in exactly all the data sets. Yep. And all of the software. I... I so far, it has sounded like most of the people that you're referring to have been masculine, like who you're working with. <laughs> I sort of, I'm sitting here waiting for you to reference like a really cool chick you're working with, and I'm like, might not happen. <laughs> oh no, the pausey work, the work, the work oh. that I'm doing at pausey was started by Anne Backhouse, who's their education and training manager. She's amazing. 
Um, I, I work with a lot of seriously cool tech women, but also measuring diversity by men and women is really a fraction of the issue. Um, and I'm meeting more and more amazing non-binary people in the tech space, but also, you know, there's a lot of boys who've been put off tech because they don't, they don't find it interesting or they don't find it fun. And when we teach with the fun approach, we eliminate all the people who don't find it fun. That's a lot of people. But when we teach it as something meaningful, we get an entirely different set of people getting interested in it. And it really changes people's attitude to these skills when they see them as tools that they can use to change their own worlds. That's a really interesting concept. I like that. Teaching is a, yeah, hmm, I can see how that would work. Yeah. I forgot to ask, by the way, who should read your book? Like what? Oh, who? Who is everybody? <laughs> um, so definitely teachers and parents and educational policymakers, but really anyone who wishes the world looked a bit more rational, a bit more logical, that policies were evidence-based and data-driven, anyone who thinks it would be nice to see the world um, less uh, less scared of science and more rational about the way we go about things, this is your book. Okay, so you don't have to have kids. You can just be a person nope. who would like things to be better and just a bit smarter. Yeah. So chapter two, for example, is what would the world look like if it was evidence-based instead of this kind of weird ideological mishmash that we have now? That was a really hard chapter to write because um, – I had to look at how the world was rather than how I wanted it to be initially. And the how the world was part, I was writing in May 2020. Oh. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit depressing, but it was a really important chapter to write. So I looked at four areas. I looked at medicine, climate science, education, and welfare. And in all of those areas, we have very clear evidence for what works. And in all of those areas, what we're doing is – uh, is actually some kind of weird ideological stuff that doesn't work. But we're not checking to see if it works. We're just, you know, stamping our feet and going, but this is what I want to do. It's it's terrifying. I really hope that you had a whole lot of support during that phase of the book and your life. Because <laughs> that's, that's like a lot of being slapped in the face. <laughs> It was. I actually had to put it down for a while and just go, I'm going to come back to that chapter because this is too hard. Um, but yeah, I, I had some really cool experts to talk to and, and you know, it was it was fascinating to write, but also horrifying at the same time. And hopefully in there you've somehow found like little glimmers of hope that we can work towards. Yeah, well, that was the goal of the chapter to say, doesn't have to be like this. Could be that we could do things with an evidence-based, and here's how, you know, here, here are the things we would do if we were actually following the evidence instead of just following our um, arrogant little ideologies. I'm avoiding saying numerous things right now. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and I'm going to move on to probably an easier question. What advice would you give to a young person, and probably not who wants your job because that's not quite the easiest but for a young person who isn't in a school where they get to use your programs yet but they they would like to mm -hmm. understand the world better they'd like to have tools that they can use to sort of take it apart put it back together again and and make it better what advice would you give to yeah. them 
There's a few super useful books that I think are wonderful starting points for sort of opening your mind to this kind of work. Obviously mine. <laughs> um, but some of the works that I've sort of built a lot of my stuff on are things like Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Um, that's a wonderful one. talks about you know, the use of um, mathematical algorithms to, to make decisions that really aren't amenable to mathematical <laughs> processes. Yeah, Weapons of Math Destruction is a wonderful book for giving you an idea of um, some of the ways we misuse maths and we misuse this idea that numbers are objective. Uh, Made by Humans by Ellen Broad is another wonderful one which gives you a great overview of um, sort of artificial intelligence and the technology industry and some of the ways in which it uh, it is made by humans, so it is still flawed and fallible and, and it doesn't deserve the reverence with which we treat it. And the other one is Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks. Um, that's an, another great one about um, about some of the problems with technology, but particularly in, in terms of the way it's used or the way it, it increases inequality rather than reducing it. It doesn't, doesn't make our lives better. And there's been some wonderful examples of that over the last couple of years. They'd be hilarious if they weren't real. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, if you wrote if if you wrote some of these things into novels or screenplays, they'd get laughed out of the room for being implausible. <laughs> like it's just ridiculous. Awesome. They they all sound like good books. I'm going to go out and try and read some of them and. Um, We'll, we'll obviously like link to them, blah, 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 and we'll link to Raising Heretics uh, when it's out. Fabulous. So in the face of some some challenging things and like that's part of the price of digging through real data is that it, it can be quite depressing. What helps you get up in the morning and keep doing it? It's the idea that I actually have the power to make change and that this work matters um, and that the more people I reach, the the bigger the change. It's 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 really exciting to be able to to make my own decisions about what does and doesn't matter and and to to make my own decisions about the the directions I go in and who I work with and to know that everything I do matters and everything I do makes a difference. Boom. That's pretty powerful. It absolutely is. And it's one of the things I use in my talks because we talk about, you know, getting kids involved with tech by doing the fun stuff. But I always say to the teachers, you know, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it is it the idea of having fun or is it the idea of actually having impact? Is it the idea of being able to make a difference? Kids want to make a difference. They want to fix things. They hate injustice. They hate seeing things wrong and not being able to fix them. We can give them the tools to fix them and also to measure how well they fix them. That's a really powerful thing. So we can give what gets me up in the morning to kids. I think that's amazing. And there's something about the the passion, like an unbridled passion of a teenager, that like if you can tune that to something, that that's way more powerful than me being passionate about it. I'm like tired and old and jaded. They're like young and they just keep going, <laughs> you know. Just point them in the right direction, give them the right tools, and something will happen. Absolutely, they they just they're incredibly powerful, but they're also incredibly frustrated. So let's give them the tools to make a difference. Give them something good to think about. Mm -hmm. Good things in their brains. So obviously, for is there anything mature people can do? Well, obviously, we've 
got a whole lot of books that you can also read. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else you'd like mature people listening like to take on or to have a go at? Advocate with your school. If you've got kids in school, advocate with your kids' schools. Um, but also if you have any kind of STEM skills, offer your skills to the school. You can do that via the um, CSIRO STEM Professionals in Schools program, or you can just walk up to a school and say, hey, you want someone to do some cool STEM projects with you? Um, I have projects on my website, on the ADSI website, that you can go and grab and just run and play with. They are all Creative Commons attribution non-commercials, so you can take them and adapt them. And if you find something that works, please share it back with us. Um, you know, just just give kids the power to do this stuff. And also, if you don't know how to do it yourself, you can always donate to Adsy because we're a charity. So you can you can power us to do it, <laughs> and you can buy the book. Yes, definitely buy the book. They're fan- they're fantastic things. Is are there any like misconceptions or myths about the work that you're doing or like the concept of raising heretics that you would like to take this opportunity to squash? I think the biggest misconception is um well there are two. One is that you can engage kids with STEM using toys. I think you only engage the kids who or who find those toys fun and not every kid finds every toy fun. Um and you know, the kids who aren't interested in tech tend not to find tech toys fun. Uh, but the other is this myth that you can't be what you can't see. I hate that saying. And it, it what it means is that a lot of a lot of uh, STEM programs that try to increase diversity in the field focus on um, providing role models. But providing role models doesn't get us past the issue that kids are learning that these skills are not relevant to them and they're learning that they can't do them. You have to start there. You have to you have to show kids that they can do it and that there's a point to doing it. And then you can change it. Then, you know, then you can get kids in to these kinds of careers who wouldn't have gone in otherwise because they suddenly understand that it's interesting and it's relevant and they can do stuff with it. They're, they're both good, but I have to say the second one is my favourite because I have a personal, <laughs> I wouldn't say vendetta, but distaste for that particular phrase because it to me it also comes across as instructional as if like if you mm. can't see someone who looks thinks yep. sounds etc like you then you're not allowed to do that thing and that just yeah there's always the first person yeah someone will always be the first um and that's hard mm-hmm. but it's also to be celebrated so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah show show kids from the inside out rather than from the outside in that they can be something and then then they'll have their yeah. own drive to do it well we know that motiv- that intrinsic motivation works and ex- extrinsic motivation doesn't work very well so why are we not building the you know making the motivation in intrinsic why are we not teaching the kids that this is something worth doing well, i know why we i think we don't do it but <laughs> don't look good on instagram <laughs> yeah yeah and, you know, that's part of the problem I have with uh, with getting attention and funding for my work because I don't have pretty pictures of me working with kids because I don't work with kids. I work with the teachers and it's not nearly so photogenic and it's not nearly, you know, it's not something that a company can come along and go, look, we did a fancy thing and we had happy, smiley kids with robots. That's that that really sells and it it sells schools and it sells, you know, programs, but it doesn't make change. So sometimes we have to donate to causes that don't look shiny. 
and sometimes that means they're actually more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wild. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? <laughs> I mean, we could be here for three weeks. <laughs> No, I think we've covered it well. (laughs) I mean, like we can come back and do like, we can do a special series on something later. Okay. Well, in that case, do you have a shout out or a virtual high five that you would like everyone who's listening to this podcast to give like virtual high fives to someone or an organization you think is just doing awesome? So I've already mentioned them, but certainly um, Anne Backhouse at Pawsey Supercomputing Center is doing wonderful work in the space of engaging teachers and students with, with real supercomputing projects and and real data and she's um really uh she's a powerhouse she's amazing so yeah I I think we should definitely celebrate the work that Pawsey does in terms of making people aware of supercomputing and its impact on the world and it's not just for like shiny distant abstract physics things it's actually for real world stuff too exactly sleep studies for example for example okay many high fives uh to Anne and thank you very much for all the good work from Pawsey as well. We'll find some cool links that we can share with people. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Linda. This has been, well, you've said lots of things that I agree with. So <laughs> hopefully <laughs> hopefully people listening are like, oh, well, they're two nutso people and not they're, they're just like, yes, this is awesome. So thank you so much for coming. It's been absolutely brilliant. <laughs> uh, it was a very great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.